So today's sermon, you know, we've been going at a pretty quick pace. Um, We've covered large chunks, many chapters at a time, or a chapter a week has been pretty consistently our pace, a chapter a week. We're going to slow down for the next 10 weeks and look at the Ten Commandments. And so uh, one sermon per uh, per commandment. And so just expect that. Today's sermon, the first half, is going to be really an introduction to the second half of Exodus and an introduction to the Ten Commandments. And then the second half of my sermon will deal with commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay? So I just wanted to give you a heads up. That's where we're going today and the next 10 weeks. And then before I start, I would like to pray a prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord for his word. Are you thankful for the word of God? Can we do that? Will you pray with me? Let's do that now. Father, we are humbled by the fact that you make yourself known. You speak. You didn't have to do that. You didn't have to reveal yourself to us. You didn't have to make yourself known to us. But God, in your grace, in your kindness, in your wisdom, in your love, you have done that. And for that, we are eternally grateful. We have the gift of your word. And in your word, you reveal the Son. In your word, you show us the gospel. In your word, you show us your will. In your word, you show us your character. God, that you are loving and faithful You are holy and awesome. And I pray that we would love your word, that we would hide your word in our hearts, that we would speak it to one another, that we would pray it, that it would inform how we pray, that we would read it and study it on our own, and that we would gather every Lord's day to hear it preached. Father, convict us when we don't read your word. I pray that as the deer panteth for the water, may our souls long for you. May we long to hear from you in your word. And we thank you, God, for your son, the word made flesh, the the perfect embodiment of the revelation of God, the word of God. We thank you, Jesus, that you came to fulfill the word. You came to reveal the word. We thank you that you lived and died and rose again, that you save your people and you rule over your people by your word. And I pray that we would joyfully and graciously and happily come under your word together today. Rule over us, O God, by your word. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So, this is kind of a mini-series. The the series title, we've been in Exodus, how many weeks now? A lot. Um, the, The series title, Rescue... Because Exodus is all about God's rescue, and then the glory of God in Exodus. The next ten weeks, kingdom rules. We're going to look at the Ten Commandments, which are God's kingdom rules. And the title for today's sermon is, There's Only Room for One. There's only room for one. There's only room for one God on our heart, the throne of our heart. There's only room for how many? One. Okay. And the big idea, and this is a principle, that this is seen throughout Scripture, we resemble what we worship. There's a great book by a New Testament scholar, Greg Beale. Uh, It's a long book, but it's really well done. And he traces this theme throughout Scripture, that we resemble what we worship. We become what we worship. Let me give you an example. I'll give you a few. Uh, I've shared this story before. I had a roommate in college. Uh, He was a dear friend. He grew up in Africa. He was a missionary kid and uh, came to the U.S. Uh, for his college years. And, man, he was an interesting guy. He, he just didn't know American culture. 
And so he was kind of lost, and he was assigned to me as my roommate. I was probably two years older than him. But I love this young guy. His name was Kevin. He was a sweet guy, a lot of fun, but kind of lost. And so he followed me everywhere. He just wanted to hang out. And so because he spent so much time with me, he went to church with me. Where I served, he served. Where I went, he went. He began to talk like me. He began to act like me. And he quickly took on the nickname. And I, man, I was against this. Uh, but, you know, college students can be cruel. They called him CJ, Chris Jr., the point is this, because he spent so much time with me, he began to resemble me, my mannerisms, the things that I would say, and we know that's true in life. Who has children? Isn't it funny when your children begin to act like you and talk like you and say things like you and do things like you and walk like you? I see that with my boys all the time. Haley's quick to point it out. My mom's quick to point it out. But think of it this way. When you get saved by God's grace, You hear the gospel, you're regenerated by the Spirit to trust in Jesus, you then become a part of God's family, and you're now going to church, and you're learning more about Jesus, and you're spending time with Him in prayer and in the Word, and as you spend time with the Lord, what happens? You begin to resemble who? Christ, right? Because we resemble what we worship, and if you know people in the world, those who love the world, they spend time with the world, they think about the world, they look to the world for fulfillment and satisfaction, they look like the world, because you resemble what you worship. Well, let me do this. Let me summarize, because last week was really important. Exodus 19, we talked about how God commissions his people, those he rescues, he sends out to rescue. And there were three R's last week. Do we recall what those were? Good. None of you were listening. That's discouraging. Now, I know you, I know you heard me. I, I know you heard this. So God rescues us for rescue. He rescues us for to resemble, right? To be holy as he is holy. So God rescues us to rescue, to go out and proclaim his rescue. He rescues us to resemble him, to be holy like he is holy. And he rescues us for relationship. And the, the fourth R that we're going to see here and on, really the second half of Exodus, he rescues us to rule over us by his word. Amen? God rescues his people, and then he means to rule over them by his what? By his word. Let me start with kind of a a biblical theological survey of the kingdom of God. Now, why start here? Now, God's kingdom, this is a big theme in Scripture. It's talked about in the Old and New Testaments. What does it refer to? I'll expand my definition, but the kingdom of God refers to his rule. God's saving rule over his people. God means to rule over his rescued people by his life, by his word. And, And there's a pattern. This is really cool. If I use that word too much, I'm not going to apologize. I just, I do sometimes, but I, when I'm wowed by something, like, oh, that's really cool. And that happens a lot in scripture. And there's this pattern that's really cool. And what is the pattern in scripture? Here it is. God creates and or rescues a people. So everybody say, you got a people. You got a people. And God rescues his people. He creates his people. And then what does he do? He rules over his people. And he does that by his what? By his word. So that's a really clear pattern in Scripture. He creates a people, he rescues a people, and then he rules over that people by his word. And and what I want to do now is just kind of trace that theme, beginning in Genesis, Exodus, and then we'll look at the New Testament. So bear with me here. I want to start with Genesis 1. What did we learn in Genesis 1 and 2? Chapters 1 and 2, we learned that God is king. In the beginning, God. And what does God do? He creates, and he creates for his glory. He is the only God. Not in the beginning there are gods. In the beginning, God. 
And what is God doing? He is creating. He is all-powerful. Amen? He is king. He rules over his creation. So in the beginning, God, God creates. He creates by his what? By his, by his word. So he, he creates and he rescues the people by his word and he rules over the people by his word. And in Genesis 1 and 2, he creates his people by his word and then he gives his people his, he gives them his word. And his word instructs and it guides his people how to live and how to live under his kingship. God's kingdom refers to his good, uh, sovereign, and saving rule over his people. And integral to his kingdom is his what? His word. Now, God initiates the relationship, amen? And he does that by his word, creating and calling his people to himself. And then that relationship continues by his, fill in the blank, his word. Okay. Is the word important? He creates by it, he saves by it, and he rules by it. Okay. And that's why I wanted to take time to pray a prayer of thanksgiving for his, his word. It's a good word, amen? God's word does what he wants it to do. That's pretty cool. <laughs> right? God sends out his word with a purpose, and his word does what he wants it to do. Is that a powerful word? Oh, man. Genesis one twenty eight. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then we move to chapter 2, 15 and 16. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But then he goes on and says, There's one tree you can't eat from, because if you do, you will surely what? You'll die. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what's center place in Genesis 1 and 2? God is speaking by his word. He's creating by his, and he's ruling by his word. It's easy to miss that. Let's go to Genesis 12. Again, the Lord speaks. He initiates the relationship by his word. He calls who in Genesis 12? Abraham. At this point, he's Abram. Pretty important guy, right? He provides his saving promises by his His word, his word is to be believed, remembered, and passed on. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, the Lord said, he spoke to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great, so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him whom dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All right, let's go to Exodus. In Exodus 3, God, what? He speaks to Moses. He initiates the relationship through his word, and he reveals himself through his word. Exodus 3, 6, and he said. Now, it's so easy just to read that, but God is speaking, the God of the universe, the creator, the king. He speaks. Grace. Does he have to speak? No. Does he owe us anything? Well, yeah, wrath. <laughs> But he speaks, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God establishes himself as king, the sole sovereign, not just in Exodus 3, but we've seen it, Exodus 3, all the way to 19. And he means to do this on a global scale. Exodus 7, 5, the Egyptians, not not just the Israelites, but the Egyptians shall know 
that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. I mentioned this earlier. The book of Exodus is all about rescue. God rescues his people and then he gives them his, his word. He establishes himself as king and he calls Israel to be his kingdom people. And by giving them his word, he is saying, this is how I mean to rule over you as king. What we see in Exodus 19.6, this was last week, just before the Lord gives his people the Ten Commandments, is his commission over their lives to be a light to the world, a light to the world people. Exodus 19.5-6, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, obey my what? My voice, my word, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. What is he saying there? I'm king. It's all mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So integral to this vocation as a set-apart people displaying the wonder of God before the world is the word of God. Israel's vocation, their job was to show the world what it looks like to live with God as king. And the key to doing this was to come under his word, his kingdom rules. Now, when you hear the word rules, what's your first reaction? Maybe you don't like that. It sounds too restrictive. We don't like rules, but rules, especially God's rules, are for our, for our good. They flow out of his love and they follow after his rescue. Now, the order is magnificently important. The rules follow rescue. Everybody say rules follow rescue. We're not rescued by keeping the rules. We're rescued to keep the rules. Amen? And the rules are for our our good. They protect and guide. (laughs) Why do parents give their children rules? Because they they love them. They care about them. They want to keep them safe. The word, God's word, is meant to show God's people how to live with God as king. And there's two elements here. There's a vertical element, and there's a horizontal element. Think about the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, right? The first half deals with man and his relationship to God, and the second half, man and his relationship to man. Because, again, here's the key thing. There's both a king and a kingdom people. Who's our king? The Lord. And who's the kingdom people? The church, right? God's people. And he wants us to live in right relationship with him and his people and he gives us his word for that reason amen what a good god now let's go to the new testament we're almost done here the lord in the new testament creates a new people by his gospel word he creates a new people by his word what brings us to life it's the spirit working through the word (gasps) i'm alive now i heard the gospel word the spirit gave me new life i embrace jesus in faith So first, the Lord creates his new creation people by his word. And how do you think he means to rule over his new creation people? By his what? By his word. Same thing. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 4-6. 
Paul writes, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 5, for what we what? What we proclaim. It's really important. What we proclaim is not ourselves. We don't proclaim ourselves, do we, church? But Jesus Christ as Lord, as King with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, for God who said, he's alluding back to Genesis 1, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So just as God spoke in the old creation to bring about life, with the new creation, God speaks to give his people what? Life. As we, church, seek to extend his kingdom, his saving rule throughout the world, we do so by proclaiming the gospel word, the word of good news. And if you follow the Great Commission, it's not just go, which is this idea of messengers being sent out with a message from the king to the world, bearing good news, we're heralding truth. When those embrace that truth, they then give their allegiance to Christ, which is seen in baptism. But then what do we do, church? Okay, so there's three things. Make disciples, going, baptizing, and come on. What's the third thing? Make disciples, going, baptizing, and ta-ta-ta-ta-ta, teaching. So God's rescued people. He means to rule over them by his word. We're teaching them everything Jesus taught us. Amen. Let me just read it. Matthew 28, 18, 20. Jesus came and said to them, all authority. He's king. He's establishing his kingship. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus connects being his kingdom people to obeying his word. Is Jesus your king? Is Jesus your king? How does he mean to rule over you, church? By his his word. Do you love his word? Are you committed to coming under his word with his people? For his glory and our good? All right. John 13, 34 to 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. We reveal we're disciples of Christ by keeping his word. John 14, 15, this is Clark's special verse. We recite together every night. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. If he's your king, you come under his word because he means to rule over his people by his, by his word. <clears throat> In sum. God rules over his people by his word, a word that first creates and then informs, guides, directs, and enlivens. According to 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, it's a word that comes from God, theopneustos. It comes from God. It's God-breathed, and it is profitable. His word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Do you love his word? Are you thankful for it? Let's talk about the covenant structure of Exodus 21 to 17. All right. I think you're going to enjoy this. But we're going to go back. 
we're building some history here. I, I briefly mentioned this last week. This is really interesting. So Exodus 20 follows a pattern. Okay, So back in the day, in the ancient Near East, people kept covenants. They made treaties together, right? And I talked about this last week. You would have a powerful king. And what was his name? The... Starts with su- the su- suzerain, okay? And then you have the lesser king called the rhymes with castle, vassal. Thank you, brother, David. So what would happen is you would have this small kingdom with a small king, and there would be this impending military threat. They're calling out for help, and a big, mighty nation with a big, mighty king would step in, and they would destroy their enemies. They would rescue the smaller kingdom, and then they would enter into a covenant together, okay? And that's what we have here. I mean, what was happening to Israel? They were slaves crying out for help. Who heard them? Who intervened? Who's the suzerain of all suzerains? Oh, good, kids. God. Is that Grant? Yeah, boy. Good job, man. I owe you another book. God is the king of kings. He rescues his people, and he enters into a covenant with them. Now, this is really interesting. There's a covenant structure. Okay? There's elements, and I put this in your handout. Okay? So the first thing is this. It's the preamble. The preamble identified the one who made the treaty. Who made the treaty? Who made the covenant? Who initiated it? God. Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God. Next, and this is the most important, there's the historical prologue. If you look at ancient Near Eastern treaties, you see these same elements, what we see in Exodus 20. But there is an important difference, and I'll get to that shortly. What's the historical prologue? What did that do? This was everything. It spelled out the history of rescue and provision. It told the story, right? You were dying, you were dead, you were in trouble, and I rescued you. Don't forget it. And now that you're going to be a part of my kingdom, follow me out of gratitude. I rescued you. You were dead. You were Dunsky. You were no moss. But I stepped in and I saved you. And that was the purpose of the historical prologue, to remind the people that they were a rescued people. What does Paul remind us of in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-3? The gospel. And what is the gospel? That's our rescue story, amen? We were dead. We could do nothing to save ourselves, but God. The good news of his death on the cross according to the scriptures and his resurrection from the dead according to the scriptures. Should we ever forget that, church? No. And we love him and we follow him out of gratitude for what he's done. We gather every Lord's Day to remember the the gospel. So this was in their covenant, spelled out. Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God. That's the preamble. Who, what did he do? Brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You were slaves, but I brought you out. I rescued you. I saved you. Don't forget it. Third element, stipulations. Now that you're my people, here's how I expect you to live. And and what are the stipulations? We're looking at the first one today. They are the what? The ten Commandments, do this, right? You're my rescued people, live this way. And that's Exodus 23 to 17. Now at this point, this is cool. At this point, the two kings, you had the big king and the lesser king, they would call upon their respective deities to witness the covenant. Well, in Exodus 20, Yahweh, the Lord, 
The one true God is both the suzerain and the deity. He's both the king who rescues and the God they call upon. Amen? He's both. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Next, you have the sanctions. What's a sanction? It's a warning. If you break my covenant, what's going to happen? I'm going to break you, essentially, right? There's going to be curses. That's Deuteronomy 28. If you disobey, you're going to be cursed. You're going to be kicked out of the land. Just like Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. But if you obey me, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to take care of you. If you want that, go to Deuteronomy 28, 1 and 2, verse 15. The last thing, and this is so important, was a public ceremony. And it was gross, kids. It was bloody. Animals were sacrificed, right? I mentioned this last week. We see it in Genesis 15. What happened? God enters into a covenant with Abraham. Animals are killed. They're cut in half. And a pathway is formed between the, the halved animals, right? And then typically what would happen is the two kings would kind of join arms and they would walk through the path, dead animals on both sides. And what did that symbolize? If either one of us breaks the covenant, may that be our fate. The blood and the death was a warning. This is serious. Take this seriously, Israel. Okay, so in Exodus 24, we see that animals are sacrificed. Blood is sprinkled. It was a warning. This will be your fate if you are unfaithful to me. Should we pay attention to the warnings of Scripture? Yes. Now, here's the important difference that must be recognized between ancient Near Eastern covenants and what we find in Scripture. As we saw before, and I mentioned this already, the Lord not only witnesses the covenant, but he is the greater king who graciously rescues his people. He's the king and the Lord God. Amen? He's both. Now, what does all this historical background help us to see in Exodus 20? The Lord is the sovereign king. The Lord is the sovereign Savior, and he rules over his rescued people by his, by his word. All right. Now, a quick introduction to the Ten Commandments. Who's familiar with the Ten Commandments? If I had your favorite candy bar in my pocket and I said, give me the ten right now, this is yours. Who could do it? Good. Several of you. Probably more of our kids, honestly. Here's the first point. The Lord rules over his rescued people by his word. Now, the context is everything here. What? If you get this wrong, you miss the gospel. And you never want to miss the gospel. Amen? What comes before the gift, God's gift of the Ten Commandments? What comes before the Ten Commandments? Rescue. Why is that important? Did God say, I'm not going to rescue you until you obey me perfectly? No, he rescues them first, grace, and then gives them his, his word. The Ten Commandments come after God's gracious rescue of his people from slavery. The commandments come after the good news. The Israelites were the recipients of God's salvation from slavery in Egypt. And after saving them... He shows them in his word how to live as his rescued people. How does Jesus summarize the Ten Commandments? This is, I think, Matthew 23. Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Love God, whole heart, mind, soul, strength, and love neighbor as self. 
So in the Ten Commandments, God shows his rescued people how to live both vertically and horizontally in response to the good news of rescue. Again, what a beautiful picture of the gospel. This is a central doctrine for the church. We mustn't ever, ever approach God's commands as the means to right standing with the holy and just God. Instead, we must approach the word and our obedience to the word as our loving response of gratitude to God's salvation in Christ Jesus. As we seek to obey the word of our king, are we trying to earn his favor? No, Christ did that for us. Amen? What are we doing? We're obeying because we love him. We're obeying out of gratitude. We're obeying because we want to. Because part of the new covenant promises a new heart with new Godward desires. I want to obey my king. Amen? Don't you? Now, do we do it perfectly? <laughs> no. But who did that for us? Hey, can I just step back for a second? Both literally and metaphorically? No. <laughs> well, I'm going to. Sweet girl. Thank you. You ever wonder what God's doing in Exodus? What's, what's he doing? He's creating a people. Okay. He's giving them his word. That sounds awfully familiar. And then he gives them a place. Well, that sounds a lot like Genesis. One and two. God is seeking to bring his people back to the garden. But they don't get there. Why? What's the problem? Simple hearts. Hard hearts, man. Woman. Bro, bro, Hannah. Do you know what Bible, the Bible screams at us from Genesis 3 onwards? We need a substitute. Amen? We need a Savior. We need one who will not only die for us, but who will live for us. Who will blaze a trail back to God's presence for us. And who did that? Who not only fulfilled the law, but took the punishment we deserve for breaking the law? Who did that? Oh! Amen? Let's go home. Not yet. I know. Kevin DeYoung writes, this is a great quote, Salvation is not the reward for obedience. Salvation is the reason for obedience. It's not the reward for obedience. It's the reason for obedience. Again, the Ten Commandments must be seen as God's kingdom rules, God's gracious instruction for his rescued people for living with him as king over their lives. One more quote from Dion. He says, the Israelites were an oppressed people. God said, I, I hear your cry. I will, I will save you because I love you. And when you're saved, free and forgiven, I'm going to give you a new way to live. And that's found where? In his, in his word. I want to take note of verse 2 quickly. I am the Lord, your God. It's easy to pass over that. That's part of that preamble, right? But also the historical prologue. I am the Lord God. No, I am the Lord, your God. That's very personal. Amen? He's a personal God. He's saying, I've rescued you, and I've rescued you to be your God, to be with you. I mean, part of the, you know, you talk about like the, the new, uh, new covenant promise, all of God's covenants, there, there's this central promise, and it's God's presence. And if I asked you, would you want to go to heaven if God wasn't there, if Christ wasn't there, I hope you would say resoundingly, No. Because what makes heaven so glorious? We get to be with our king forever. Amen? I'm your God. I'm your God. Now, one final word before we dive into the first commandment. 
Again, the Ten Commandments, the law, are not to function as a means for getting in, but rather they are to characterize life in the kingdom of God. So we're in by grace. And now that we have the word, the word shows us how to live as God's rescued people. Is the law good? Yeah, it's good. It reveals God's character, our sin, and it drives us to Jesus. And in Jesus, we are empowered to live this way, not to gain favor with God because Christ already did that, but to live as his kingdom citizens with his kingdom people, the church. All right, commandment number one. I'm going to move quickly now, so buckle up. Here's our second point. Commandment number one, the God of rescue demands his rescued people's allegiance. Do you know that God is jealous and rightfully so? And as the rescuer, what does he demand of us? Our what? Our heart. Our allegiance. Exodus 20, verse 3. This is the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Have you ever wondered why this is the first commandment? It's because it's foundational for the rest. In the first commandment, God establishes himself as the sole supreme. He establishes his claim over all of our lives due to the fact that he alone is God and there is no other. The next nine must be heeded because of the first. In fact, the Bible begins on this note as seen in Genesis 1.1, where we read, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, what? Is there an S? Is it plural? No, in the beginning, God. No other gods are mentioned because there are, in fact, no other what? There are no other gods. And this was a unique claim in the ancient world. Israel was surrounded by polytheistic, meaning many gods, polytheistic cultures. There were gods for everything, right? Therefore, idolatry was a real temptation for Israel, as it is for us today. But what we see from Genesis to Exodus is that the God of the Bible alone is creator and savior, and that he alone is worthy of our hearts and allegiances. Deuteronomy 6.4, hear, O Israel. This is the Shema. Shema just means listen. It's a Hebrew verb in the imperative form. Shema! Shema! <laughs> listen up, right? Listen! Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is... He's one. Isaiah 45, verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Why repeat himself? For emphasis. He's trying to drive this point home. There's only one God. What is contained, oh, this is cool, what is contained in Exodus 23 is proven in the preceding chapters with the supernatural plagues of God against the Egyptians. Again, context, as always, is important here. God's supernatural plagues, Exodus 7 to 11, essentially wipe out the Egyptian pantheon, right? Every plague that God brings upon the Egyptians corresponds to an Egyptian god. What is God saying? Those gods aren't real. Who's God? God is saying, I am. <laughs> I am. What is idolatry? Next week's sermon, we're going to look at the second commandment. I'm going to call it idolatry part two. What is idolatry? Well, Martin Luther, let's go to the great reformer. Martin Luther defined it this way. He said, idolatry is whatever your heart clings to and relies upon. That is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. Greg Beale adds, whatever your heart clings to or relies on for ultimate security. What 
Who are you looking to today for ultimate security? J.A. Motier, he writes, The idol is whatever claims the loyalty that belongs to God alone. The idol is whatever claims the loyalty that belongs to God alone. Tim Keller years ago wrote this. He said, idols are good things that we make ultimate things, right? I mean, are our kids a good thing? Family, good thing? Maybe your career. I mean, good thing, right? God calls us to work. But if you make that an ultimate thing, what does it become? An idol. And that's not good. So the question is, who or what has your heart? Now, what does the first commandment call for? The first commandment, are you ready? Calls for us to give our sole allegiance to the sole sovereign, the supreme Lord. And who is that? The one true God revealed in Scripture. It's the call to look to God alone for life, satisfaction, and ultimate fulfillment. It's the call to love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to seek His glory in some things, no end. All things. Now, without the first commandment, the other nine are impossible and irrelevant. A quick look at the Hebrew. This is, I love prepositions. Okay? Verse 3 of Exodus 20, we have the phrase before me. You shall have no other gods, Alpanay, before me. Before. What does that mean? The Lord says, you shall have no other gods, and then underline this, before me. The word before in Hebrew can be translated as in addition to, against, or beside. What this means, friends, are you ready? This is layman's terms. I need this. What this means is that there is only room for one God on the throne of our hearts. Amen? Only room for one. That's the title of my sermon. Only room for one. Recall Jesus' words in Matthew 6.24. No one can serve Two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. And I would say oftentimes money is one of our biggest idols. Room for how many on the throne of your heart? Room for one. Now how does the first commandment point to Jesus? As Christians, we know that this one true God, who alone deserves our worship has made himself known in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In order to properly obey the first commandment, we must recognize Jesus as the Word made flesh, John 1.14, the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15, and the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, Hebrews 1.3. Kevin DeYoung, oh, I got him one more time. K-Dog, that's what I call him. K-Dog, he writes... The first commandment can no longer be properly obeyed unless we worship the one who alone shows us the one true God. Who came to reveal the one true God? Jesus, who is God. Amen? Remember John 1.18? No one has seen God, but God, the one and only who is the Father's side, who has made him what? Known. In Christ, the first commandment is fulfilled and made possible. Jesus, through his perfect Life has shown us. Jesus has shown us. Everybody say, Jesus, Jesus. has shown us. And with the kids, when I taught Thursday night, I, I would keep going and they would keep repeating. So I'd say, oh, no, that was it, sweetie. That's it. Jesus has shown us what true and perfect 
allegiance to the Lord looks like. More than that, Jesus has made, he's made this allegiance possible. Amen? So Jesus both shows us what true and perfect allegiance to the Lord looks like. So we have the example, but Christ is also the means. He's the way. He's the, everybody say he's the way. All right, you're still with me. Good. Uh, I'm going to skip this part. Man, I don't want to. Let me summarize it. Who knows the gospel? Now, if we only emphasize forgiveness, have we told the whole gospel? Is forgiveness a big part of it? Yes. I mean, I would even say forgiveness is everything, but there's, there's still more good news to the good news. The gospel provides both forgiveness and transformation. In Christ, we can do the Ten Commandments, not as a means of earning God's favor, but as a way of joyfully demonstrating our gratitude to Jesus, our King, for his saving work on our behalf. Now, let me ask this question. Why do we struggle with the first commandment? Who's honest here? I tell my, wow, who's honest here and not a hand goes up? (laughs) Well, maybe I should say who strives to be honest? Okay, maybe that was, you know, you guys were being humble. Chris, I mean, I'm not perfectly honest if that's what you're asking. I wasn't asking that. Who's honest? Who would admit they sometimes struggle with the first commandment? That at times, there are good things in your life that you allow to become ultimate things. Okay? All right. John Calvin once said, the human heart is an idle factory. Right? I mean, what what does the heart produce? The human heart. The sinful heart. What's it good at? It produces idols, right? And what are idols? Anything we put in place of the Lord. Anything that we look to for ultimate security and satisfaction. Even as Christians who have been washed, justified, and are steadily being sanctified as we head towards glorification, what? We must by necessity repent of this sin. We must be vigilant in making war against it. The sin of idolatry goes back to the garden. And is certainly at the heart of all human sin. In Genesis 3, the devil brings a tantalizing lie before Adam and Eve. Assuring them that they can essentially be God if they, what? If they disobey. Huh. You can be just like him. So, if we disobey, we can be God. We can be God! And what did they do? They jumped at the chance. What a lie. What a lie from the pit. This vision of godlike authority and power pulled them over the edge. And still today, we struggle with this lie. We long to be in control. We long for glory. We long for fame. We long for worship. You know what we long for, all of us? We long for the throne, don't we? Don't lie. You do. I do too. We long for the throne. But who is the only one who has the right to the throne? Jesus. Amen? This side of glory, we are not yet, oh, but we will be one day. But this side of glory, we are not yet totally free from the effects of sin. Now, we are free from the punishment of sin. Christ took that for us. Amen? We don't bear that anymore. But even as Christians who are filled with the Spirit sin still from time to time, and by that I mean daily, rears its ugly head. And you know what sin hungers for? The throne. More than anything else. 
sin hungers for the throne. How does Jesus define, I think this will be, now we're going to get some really practical things. How does Jesus define discipleship? Mark 8, 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone, and this is Luke's special verse. So Clark gets John 14, 15. Luke gets Mark 8, 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Everybody say repentance. It's tantamount, meaning it's comparable, it's the same, i.e., repentance is tantamount to abdication. What does abdication mean? Getting off the throne, right? When we repent of sin, what are we doing? We're getting off the throne. We're acknowledging that who's king? Christ, and who's not? I'm not. I'm not king. You know what I find interesting? Who's ever read 1 John? Do you know how John ends his letter, 1 John? Oh, it's great. Listen. I mean, this is, now to some it might seem anticlimactic. Maybe you're thinking for a bigger punch, but I think this is so good. And it's inspired by the Spirit, so who are we to disagree with God? Don't do it. Not a good place to be. But listen to what John says at the end of his first epistle. Little children, who's he talking to there? That's believers. Okay, that's, that's uh, I mean, interchangeably. So believers, little children, here it is. Keep yourselves from idols. If you get nothing else this morning, get this. This, this will, I, I think, if you hold on to this, the Lord will use it to help you fight the sin of idolatry. <coughs> Again, this is a letter addressed to Christians. Why would John end his letter on this note? Little children, believers, keep yourselves from what? From idols. John makes a striking statement at the end of verse 20. So the verse just before this, he says, He is the true God and eternal life. John is talking about who here? Jesus. Now, how, again, context. How does verse 20 help us to understand verse 21, the imperative, keep yourselves from idols? What's going to help us keep ourselves from idols, remembering that Jesus is the true God, and in him is what? Eternal life. Can money buy eternal life? Can fame? Can that relationship? Who alone? Only Jesus is God, and only he can provide eternal life. This reveals the utter foolishness of idolatry. Idolatry is placing anything or anyone on the throne of your heart rather than Christ. And the gospel reveals to us the truth, this truth about the true God, guarding our hearts against idolatry. What will guard our hearts against idolatry? Remembering that Jesus is the true God, and in him is what? Eternal life. What do we long for? When... when, when when the world is looking to the fangs of this world for satisfaction, what itch are they trying to scratch? They want life forever. They want satisfaction forever. But where is it found? In the true God. And who is that? Jesus Christ. What will help us fight the fight against idolatry? Remembering the what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, how do we diagnose idolatry in our lives? Three questions. Who and what has your time and money? Who wants to diagnose idols in their lives? Who wants to be aware of anything in their life they're seeking to put on the throne of their heart over and above Christ? Okay. Number one, who and what has your time and money? Where do you invest your time and money? Do you spend more time reading the word, praying, gathering with God's church, evangelizing the lost, discipling your kids, or more time staying late at work? perusing the internet, fishing on the lake, and watching television. If Christ has your heart, 
and he's your king, then it will be seen in how you invest your time and money. Is true? There's a clear correlation there. Number two, who or what do you resemble? Those who have, by grace, appropriated the gospel by faith in Jesus. Guess what? They will resemble who? Christ. That's our third thing. But who or what do you resemble? Listen to Psalm 15. Psalm 115, 3 to 8. This is really good. The psalmist says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So stop there. That's a whole sermon. But (laughs) our God is in the heavens. Meaning what? He's king over all. And he does all that he pleases. Meaning he's omnipotent. He's all powerful. There's no one like him. Our God is supreme. Their idols (laughs) are silver and gold. The work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. Eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but don't smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but don't walk. And they don't even make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. This is a reoccurring theme in Scripture. We resemble what we worship. Who do you resemble, church? Christ or the world. That's number three. Do you look more like Christ or the world? 1 John 2, 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Last question is this. How do we fight idolatry? How do we fight idolatry? Two things here. Walk by the Spirit and preach the gospel to yourself daily. Who can do that? Who can do that in their own strength? Raise your hand. Who can do it in the Lord? Galatians 5.16 But I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh desires what? throne. The key to keeping Christ on the throne of our hearts is walking by the Spirit. How do we do this? Who's ever heard the phrase walk by the Spirit? Who's absolutely clueless to what that means? It sounds great, but what does it mean? Did you know that walking by the Spirit goes hand in hand with the Word of God? The Spirit through the Word points us to the matchless beauty and worth of King Jesus. Remember Paul's words in Ephesians 5.18? And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the filled the Spirit. And then what does he say in the very next verse, verse 19? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Those who are filled with the Spirit are in the Word, and as a result are speaking the Word to other believers. The Spirit of God works through the Word of God to make the people of God more like the Son of God, and this for the glory of God. The Spirit of God works through the Word of God to make the people of God more like the Son of God. And this for the the glory of God. The key to overcoming idolatry is getting into the the Word. Getting into the Word where the Spirit is at work pointing us to the beauty and majesty of King Jesus. Only then, guys, idols are stupid. And they're worthless and they will waste your time. Agreed? When you're here, okay, now, now you might think, man, hey, you haven't seen some of my idols. They're pretty hot. I mean, they're pretty wonderful, Chris. Well, let me just tell you this Is there anyone more wonderful than Jesus? Anyone more awesome than Jesus? Anyone more magnificent than Jesus? And where do we learn that time and time again? Every time we open up this word, We see the unparalleled majesty of Christ. And when you see that, and then you look at your idols, that sound kind of comes to mind. 
Are you kidding me? So what is the key to overcoming idolatry being here? Where we behold Christ and see the utter foolishness of idol worship. What was the passage in 1 John 5, 20 and 21? He alone is God, and in him is what? Eternal life. Can your idols give you eternal life? Can your idols bring you to God? Say it in Spanish. No, no. Lastly, preach the gospel to yourself. Again, as we saw in 1 John 5, 20 and 21, the gospel precludes, it prevents idol worship. Remembering the gospel and keeping the gospel at the center of our lives will what? It will help us to fight off the foolishness of idolatry. Why do we gather, church? To remember the what? The gospel. Amen? And don't forget it. Don't forget it. You know, I stopped writing discussion questions over the summer because we're not doing home groups right now, but here are a few you can think about today at home with your family, this week at work, or if you do a Bible study with a brother or sister, bring up these questions. Number one, how are you currently making war on the sin of idolatry? Number two, how are you helping others in the church make war on the sin of idolatry? Number three, are you in the Word daily? Do you have accountability? Number four, what is, this is really important, Think about this today. What is the evidence in your own life that Jesus is on the throne of your heart? What is the evidence in your own life that Jesus is on the throne of your heart? You know, the the point of all this, right, the point of the Exodus, God's a God of rescue, but guess what? We can't rescue ourselves. God rescues his people. He gives them his good word. He promises them a place, but they blow it. Why? Because they need a rescuer. They need one who will not only give them the word, but will do the word. And Christ came to do the word. He came to fulfill the law. He lived the life we couldn't live. Amen? We need a substitute. We need a savior. The Old Testament is proclaiming that message. And Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the substitute. He lived in our place and he died in our place. And then he rose again, which proves all his claims are true. And if you trust in Jesus, forgiveness. Life forever with God, and by the Spirit, the power to live differently, to be transformed more and more into the image of God, and that for the glory of God. Do you love Jesus? Is he your king? Do you love his word? Are you coming under it? Let's go, church. Let's pray. Father, your word is good. We're reminded today in Scripture that we need you. We're reminded today in Scripture that we need a substitute. And Jesus, you are that perfect substitute. Not only did you die the death we deserve, we're all sinners. We've all fallen short. But Jesus, you lived the perfect life. You paid that debt. God, you're holy. And we're unholy. God, you're righteous and we're unrighteous. God, you're sinless and we're sinful. But Jesus, you came as the sinless one. And you lived out the word of God, the law of God, perfectly in our place. You paid that debt for us, and then you took the punishment we deserve in our place at the cross, and for that, we are forever grateful. I pray that out of gratitude and out of love for you, we would live according to your word. Help us to be a word-centered church. Help us to come under your word together. Make us aware today of any idols, anything that we've placed on the throne of our heart in place of you, and Father, give us the grace and the strength to get rid of those things to put them in their proper place, and to seek you and you alone as our Lord and King and Savior. And it's in Christ that we pray. And all God's people said.